0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Wednesday, March 8th reading of the Denver Post. My name is Bill Head. Today we'll be reading the following main articles. Mayoral Race, aspirants Agree on One Thing, Change by Joe Rubino and John Murray. Biden's Budget, Proposals, Tax Hike to Bolster Medicare by Jim Tankersley and Margot Sanger-Katz. Immigration, In Reversal Biden Ways Detaining Families by Colleen Long and Elliot Spaget. Mayoral Race, Aspirants Agree on One Thing, Change. Candidates rarely invoke outgoing mayor's name, but Hancock is at center of everything in election by Joe Rubino and John Murray, the Denver Post. Unanimous agreement can be hard to come by on any topic among the vast field of candidates running for Denver mayor in the upcoming municipal election. But that's exactly what moderators found during a debate in mid-February. They asked 13 of those candidates if they felt Denver needs a significant change in direction from the outgoing administration of three-term mayor Michael Hancock. All 13 raised their hands. Among the four other candidates who weren't invited to that debate, one regularly referred to the mayor's failed leadership during public appearances. Another, at a different mayoral forum, called Hancock the worst leader the city ever had. The longtime mayor's presence is felt in every every plan a campaign announces to pivot in a new direction on homelessness, housing affordability, public safety, the city's approach to parks, and countless other issues. Hancock set the baseline for the last dozen years, the mark against which nearly every candidate's vision is judged. That's true even if some candidates, whether out of politeness or an attempt to keep the focus on the future, rarely invoke Hancock directly. The city that Michael Hancock is leaving behind is what this race is about, said Eric Sonderman, a Denver political analyst. The issue is Denver in year 12 of the Hancock administration, but not Hancock himself. The candidates are tapping into what several have said is a yearning for change among voters. Denverite's dissatisfaction with the outgoing mayor, whether real or perceived, reflects a pattern often seen in presidential politics, said Paul Teske, dean of the University of Colorado Denver School of Public Affairs. A candidate swoops into the office promising change, wins another term, and then sees voters opt for a different direction, rejecting the president's political party after eight years. Longer term limits in Denver give mayors more opportunity to have an impact but also the risk of overstaying their welcome. After 12 years, I think there is a lot of accumulated problems with a city or a state or a country that are kind of owned by the incumbent, fairly or unfairly, Teske said. You tack COVID and all the challenges of the last three years at the end of those 12 years, and that makes it all the tougher. Unclear if Denver voters are souring on Hancock. Recent poll results painted a complicated picture of Denver's relationship with its outgoing leader. A survey of 405 likely voters in early February found that 33% had a favorable favorable view of the mayor, while 55% 55 viewed him unfavorably, a net favorability rating of negative 22 percentage points. A group of business leaders operating operating as the group a Denver for for us all, commissioned that poll, which was performed by a bipartisan team of pollsters. In comparison, the poll found Governor Jared Polis, a fellow Democrat, had a positive net favorability of nearly 54 percentage points, with 75% viewing him positively. The net favorability of the Denver Police Department was slightly positive, with with favorable views outpacing unfavorable views by 1.7 percentage points. Last week, another poll reported sharply contrasting results for Hancock on, different, on a different question, this time about job approval. Among 713 registered Denver voters surveyed in the latter part of February by Survey USA, 55% said they approved of the job Hancock is doing in the mayor's office, while 31% disapproved. That poll is sponsored by Nine News, the Denver Gazette, and Metropolitan State University. In a recent interview in his office, Hancock said he and his staff were focused on running the city during the final few months of his tenure. That said, he was watching the debate when all of the participating candidates universally agreed the city needed a change. I thought it was way more personal than it had to to be toward me, which misses the point, Hancock said. It doesn't get into the fact that as a nation we have to address the issues of post COVID economics. We have to address the issues of housing. He may be a lame duck, but Hancock said he and his team are not sitting idly by as the city grapples with the seemingly ever growing challenges of homelessness and runaway rents and home prices. <clears throat> when he listens to the candidates seeking to succeed him, he said he hears a lot of the same ideas his administration either is putting into action now or has considered, tested, and moved on from. We're regular pollers as well, and that is to determine whether or not the city is going in the right direction, Hancock said. And we have, I can tell you, consistently found that people of Denver believe Denver is moving in the right direction for the most part. That an outgoing three-term mayor has kept a low profile during, con- con- a, during a contentious 17-way race, to succeed him as surprise, is a surprise to Saunderman, especially as polling has shown no candidates are breaking out yet. I think the town, even though they are not fully engaged with this race, and they're 59% or 60% undecided, has moved on from Michael Hancock, he said. Normally, you have candidates lining up clamoring for endorsements, or if not endorsements, a nice word. And I don't see anyone standing in that line right now. Hancock says he won't make an endorsement in the race. His team will have to manage the transition to the new administration, he said, and publicly supporting someone who doesn't win, a real possibility in such a crowded field, will only complicate relations with the victors' team. Some candidates hesitate to spotlight differences. As candidates campaign for change, there have been occasional call-outs of Hancock at debates and forums. But James Maya, uh, a longtime civic leader and former candidate for mayor in 2011, when Hancock first won, has taken note of the apparent hesitance of some ca- contenders to draw explicit distinctions by naming Hancock. It's interesting that nobody's really hammered that, Maya said. They talk about issues and things that don't they don't think are going well, but they don't spotlight differences with the incumbent. Are they trying too hard not to make anyone mad? Not underlining differences can, po- can pose a risk, too, Maya said. If nobody's standing out in a juxtaposition with the incumbent, that makes it harder to emerge from such a large field. There have been exceptions. Robert Tretta, a building contractor, has called Hancock the city's worst ever mayor. Andy Rougeau, a businessman who stands out as a Republican, refers often to Hancock's tenure as one of failed leadership. Sonderman gave candidates a chance to weigh in on Hancock during a forum last month that aired on public television station PBS 12. He asked the 10 candidates on the stage who were invited because they were leading in fundraising at the time what they viewed as Hancock's most significant accomplishment, as well as his biggest failure in office. Growing Denver International Airport into a vital economic engine for the city and state was a common praise. On the critical side, falling short in addressing housing needs and homelessness came up often. Kwame Spearman praised Hancock, calling his handling of the pandemic amazing. I would encourage all of us, while we're on the campaign trail, let's say more positive things about him, said Spearman, who's on a leave of absence from his job as a CEO of the tattered-covered bookstore. It's a tough job, and I think he needs some recognition. Other candidates did take the opportunity to draw starker contrasts between themselves and Hancock. Lisa Calderon, a social justice advocate who ran against Hancock in 2019 and sparred with his administration in court, said his biggest achievement was motivating her to run. State Senator Chris Hansen knocked Hancock for letting the city wallow in the aftermath aftermath of the worst of the pandemic. We had a chance to accelerate and double down on the momentum Denver had before the pandemic, Hansen said. I think we've missed that opportunity, and unfortunately, tonight we spent a lot of time talking about safety, affordability, and the places we're falling short. And that's why I'm running for mayor. Hancock talks about tuning out the noise of the election, but it's clear he is paying close attention. Like a majority of the voters, the mayor is waiting for someone to stand out from the pack, he said. What is the innovative idea that's not been tried? Who's going to break out with that one thing that captures our imagination, our vision, and really lays out the vision that they have for the city, Hancock said. It's not easy to watch or listen to, but I understand also what's happening. You've got to create a narrative for yourself, and you've got to have the voters believe that you're the right person for this time. Biden's budget, proposals tax hike to bolster Medicare by Jim Tankersley and Margot Sanger Katz, The New York Times. Washington, President Joe Biden, as part of his budget set for release Thursday, will propose raising and expanding a tax on Americans earning more than $400,000 a year as part of a series of efforts to extend the solvency of Medicare by a quarter century. In spotlighting his Medicare plans, Biden is seeking to sharpen a contrast with Republicans and cast himself as a protector of cherished retirement programs, both for his likely re-election campaign and for a looming congressional battle with House conservatives who are demanding steep cuts in federal spending in order to raise the nation's borrowing limit. The early release of the Medicare proposals, detailed in a White House fact sheet Tuesday, also underscored the degree to which Biden has fully embraced the political upside of taxing high earners. That is the case even though administration officials have conceded there is little chance those tax increases will pass Congress. The proposals would affect the so-called net investment income tax, which has enacted was enacted to help offset the cost of former President Barack Obama's signature health care law. They would increase the tax rate to 5% from 3.8% for people earning above $400,000 a year and expand the income subject to it. Independent estimates from the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center and the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget suggest the changes could raise at least $350 billion and possibly as much as $600 billion over the course of a decade. White House estimates are even higher, $700 billion in net revenue over a decade, all from high earners. Biden is also proposing new cost savings for government stemming from aggressive negotiation over pres- prescription drug prices. Those plans are almost certain to be rejected by Republicans, who won control of the House in November and roundly opposed both tax increases and Biden's efforts to reduce pharmaceutical prices through regulation. The President's emphasis on so-called entitlement programs is part of a sustained effort to claim a high ground with voters on both Medicare and Social Security and put Republicans in a difficult position as he clashes with conservatives on spending, taxes, and debt. Medicare's trustees estimated its hospital trust fund would be insolvent by 2028 without congressional action. Many Republicans have long supported cuts to the program's or raising their retirement ages to shore up the program's finances and reduce federal spending. But others, aware of the potential voter backlash from touching popular programs, have grown wary of embracing the types of changes to the programs that were part of the Republican mainstream a decade ago. Former President Donald Trump vowed to protect both Social Security and Medicare and urged Republicans to follow suit. Speaker Kevin McCarthy McCarthy recently said he would not seek cuts to the programs and discussions with Biden over raising the debt limit, though more conservative members of his party are still pushing for reductions. This debate over entitlements tied to the need to raise the federal debt ceiling has tied tied the party in knots, said Larry Lovett, an executive vice president of the Kaiser Family Foundation, a health research group. And I think President Biden is happy to engage in this debate and put forward proposals to sustain Medicare without cutting benefits or eligibility. Biden has refused to negotiate with Republicans over the debt limit, though he has said he is willing to discuss fiscal policy more broadly. He repeatedly attacked Republicans on Social Security and Medicare, vowing not to cut the programs and piling on when Republican lawmakers declared them off the table in budget talks. The President's budget plan seeks to further that message, in part by employing accounting maneuvers to make Medicare appear more solvent by directly dedicating more federal revenues to its trust fund. The budget will dictate that both new tax increases and the savings from spending on prescription, prescription drugs would be used to increase the trust fund that finances Medicare's hospital benefits. It will also propose transferring the existing revenue stream from the net investment tax to feed Medicare's trust fund. The White House anticipates that together the changes would total about $1.5 trillion over the next decade, ensuring the fund can pay Medicare's hospital bills for an additional 25 years. The finances for the part of, of Medicare that pays for doctors' visits, which is also projected to grow substantially in coming years, would be unaffected. The budget I am releasing this week will make the Medicare trust fund solvent beyond 2050 without cutting a penny in benefits, Biden wrote in an opinion piece for the New York Times on Tuesday. In fact, we can get better value making sure Americans receive better care for the money they pay into Medicare. For the first time this year, Medicare will begin regulating the price of prescription drugs using new powers. Congress gave it gave it in the Inflation Reduction Act, the tax, health, and climate bill Biden signed late last summer. The president's budget highlights the substantial savings that the the reforms are expected to generate over time. The legislation allows Medicare to regulate the price of certain expensive drugs that have been on the market for several years. It also limits the amount all drug makers can raise prices each year. Those reforms would save Medicare and about $160 billion over a decade, according to the Congressional Budget Office. The changes to prescription drug prices accompany changes to Medicare's benefit that will also lower the cost of expensive drugs, drugs for its beneficiaries by capping the total amount that they can be asked to pay in a year for all their medicines and by limiting co payments on insulin to $35 a month. Biden will propose expanding the drug negotiations by allowing the government to negotiate over a broader universe of medications. The White House estimates that those changes and other tweaks to the drug negotiation provision could save the government an additional $200 billion over 10 years, which it seeks to direct to the Medicare trust fund. The United States pays more than double the drug prices of other developed countries but lowering those prices is projected to cause less investment in new drug technology. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that the drug price reforms that passed last, late last year will mean about 13 fewer drugs in the next 30 years, about a 1% reduction. The budget proposal would likely have a larger effect. Democrats cheered the proposals. Senator Rod Wyden, Democrat, Oregon, who chairs the Finance Committee, called them proof positive that Medicare's guaranteed of quality health care for older Americans can be secured for the next generation without raising the eligibility age, cutting benefits, or handing over the program to big insurance companies. Biden did not propose other major new, new policies to reduce Medicare's spending on all health care in the coming years, according to the fact sheet. His proposal, like his previous budgets, omits a series of policies meant to reduce waste, that were featured in budgets offered by Trump and Obama. The largest categories of Medicare spending, payments to doctors and hospitals, would be unchanged. Republicans are unlikely to go along. They have tried to overturn the entire Inflation Reduction Act, including the drug negotiations which some members of the party say will hamper innovation in the pharmaceutical industry. They have also sought to roll back Biden's tax increases on corporations and high earners. Immigration. In reversal, Biden weighs detaining families by Colleen Long and Elliot Spaggott, the Associated Press. Washington. The Biden administration is considering detaining migrant families who cross into the U.S. illegally as it prepares to end COVID 19 restrictions at the U.S. Mexico border, according to U.S. officials familiar with the plans. That would be a major reversal after officials in late 2021 stopped holding families in detention facilities. Homeland Security officials are working through how to manage an expected increase in in migrants at the border once the COVID-19 restrictions that have been in place since 2020 are are lifted in May. Detention is one of the several ideas under discussion. Nothing has been finalized, the officials said. If families were detained, they would be held for short periods of time, perhaps just a few days, and their cases expedited through immigration court, one official said. The officials were unauthorized to speak publicly about internal deliberations and spoke on condition of anonymity. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre declined to comment on rumors that the policy was under consideration. I'm not saying that it is. I'm not saying that it is not, she said. She refused to say whether President Joe Biden believed the detention of families was humane. Both the, but the U.S. has increasingly moved to restrict migrants as it faces record numbers of people coming to the Mexico border seeking asylum and is seeing some success at, at bringing down the number of migrants making a dangerous and often deadly journey. The suggestion to, again, detain families was met with with disdain from immigration advocates who point to studies that show how detrimental detention can be for children and families. Many said they were surprised to hear of the possibility because they had been told families would no longer be detained. The Biden administration is seeking to find a balance that protects the rights of those fleeing persecution and violence and the desire to enhance the Orderliness, orderliness of asylum processing, says Sergio Gonzalez, executive director of the Immigration Hub. Detaining families has no place in this quest. We implore the administration to reject this shameful retrograde practice. In 2020, Biden said in a tweet, after reports that children were being released but not their parents, children should have should be released from ICE detention with their parents immediately. This is pretty simple, and I can't believe I have to say this. Families belong together. A new poll by the Associated Press, NORC, Center for Public Affairs Research, shows some support for changing the number of immigrants and asylum seekers allowed into the country. About 4 in 10 U.S. adults say the level of immigration and asylum seekers should be lowered while about 2 in 10 said it would be higher, according to the poll. About a third want want the numbers to remain the same. Illegal border crossings plummeted after Biden announced January 5th that Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans would be returned to Mexico if they crossed illegally. At the same time, the administration announced that up to 30,000 people from Those four countries could come monthly if they applied online, arrived at an airport, and had a financial sponsor. The Border Patrol stopped immigrants 128,410 times on the Mexico border in January, January, down 42% from December, which was the highest month on record. February numbers have not been publicly released, but one of the officials told the AP migrants were stopped about 130,000 times. Last month, the administration said it would generally deny asylum to, to migrants who show up the U.S. southern border without first seeking protection in a country they pass through, mirroring an attempt by the Trump administration that never took effect because it was blocked in court. However, most of, the, of these efforts do not include families, which are treated differently because of the children traveling. But parents who fear detention may also start sending their children alone and the number of unoccupied migrants is also rising. I'm alarmed by news reports that the administration is considering reinstating family detention policies, said Benny Thompson, Democrat from Mississippi, the ranking member of the House Homeland Security Committee. Not only are these policies cruel and harmful to children, but they don't prevent families from traveling to the United States. The administration has the capacity to house Roughly 3,000 people in two family detention centers in Texas. Both the Obama, Obama and Trump administration, administrations detained families in those facilities until their immigration cases played out. Through a court order, prevents though a court order prevents the government from holding children beyond 20 days. A third detention center in Pennsylvania was shut down a few months ago. Jean-Pierre rushed back against criticism that Biden was reinstating some of the policies of former President Donald Trump, who among the major changes he made to an immigration system severely curbed asylum and forcibly separated children from their parents at the border in a policy denounced worldwide as inhumane. A lot of people have compared what the president is doing is either extending what Trump did or being very Trump-like, Jean-Pierre said. That is not what is happening here. Administration officials are ending the national emergency on May 11th that was brought on by the pandemic. Because the border restrictions known as Title 42, 42 are tied to the national emergency, the administration is also planning to end them on May 11th. The U.S. Supreme Court is weighing a Republican led effort to leave them in place, but it has removed oral arguments on the case from its calendar. The majority of migrants who come who come seeking asylum do not actually win asylum, according to data from the U.S. government. Only about 30% are deemed eligible under U.S. law, which narrowly defines who qualifies. Many people come, are coming are seeking a better life and fleeing poverty and devastation in their home countries, but it doesn't often mean they get to stay in the U.S. The two Texas detention centers are in Karnes. Karns City, and Dilly Families would would likely be held again in Dilly, which was used to detain families during the Obama and Trump administrations. The New York Times first reported that officials were considering detaining families again. Fox News Dominion lawsuit. Murdoch in filing says 2020 election not stolen by David Bowder and Jennifer Peltz, the Associated Press. New York, Fox Corp. Chairman Rupert Murdoch said under oath that he believes the 2020 presidential election was free, fair, and not stolen, according to court filings released Tuesday in a voting machine company's defamations lawsuit over Fox News' coverage of former President Donald Trump's false election fraud claims. In sworn questioning in January by lawyers for Denver-based Dominion Voting Systems, Murdoch was asked, do you believe the 2020 presidential election was free and fair? Yes, he replied, according to a transcript. The election was not stolen, he said later. Dominion is suing Fox News for $1.6 billion, according to the network, crippled the company's business by broadcasting false claims of Trump, Trump's lawyers that Dominion had changed votes in the 2020 election. Hundreds of pages of exhibits and lawsuit, which is expected to go to trial next month, were released late Tuesday. They shed further light on internal skepticism at Fox over the fraud claims and the network's worry about voters, uh, viewers angry with its own election night declaration that Democratic Joe Biden had won Arizona. Those exhibits and earlier court filings demonstrate how Fox hosts and executives continue to promote those claims to viewers despite strong doubts. And denials behind the scenes. Federal and state election officials, exhaustive re- reviews in battleground states, and Trump's attorney general found no widespread fraud that could have changed the outcome of the 2020 election, nor did they uncover any cre- credible evidence that the vote was tainted. Trump's allegations of fraud also have been roundly rejected by dozens of courts, including by judges he had appointed. Fox says Dominion is inventing its claims of lost business and has cherry-picked and misrepresented remarks by Fox Fox hosts and leaders to paint a picture of a company that threw truth aside to keep its audience. Dominion has been caught red-handed using more distortions and misinformation in their PR campaign to smear Fox News and trample on free speech and freedom of the press, the company said in a statement Tuesday, complaining that To twist and even misattribute quotes to the highest levels of our company is truly beyond the pale. The documents revealed top Fox executives discussed ways of mollifying anger from Trump's team over the election call, including a quick dismissal of, of a Washington executive who was behind the Arizona decision. We don't want to antagonize Trump further, Murdoch said in a November 16th memo, He explained in the deposition he had a very large following and they were probably mostly viewers of Fox, so it would have been stupid. In an earlier unsealed filing in the Dominion case, Murdoch acknowledges that some of the network's hosts, Lou Dobbs, Maria Bartry Romo, and Jean Pirro and Sean Hannity, at times endorsed the false claims. He also said, he didn't stop the commentators from promoting the false claims from Trump allies that the election was stolen, even though he could have. Former House Speaker Paul Ryan, a Fox Corp board member, said he never believed Trump's conspiracy theories about the election. In a December 7th text to Fox Executive Lachlan Murdoch, Ryan suggested that Fox broadcast a solid pushback against the allegations of fraud, knowing that... It, that this is a key inflection point for Fox, where the right thing and the smart business thing to do line up nicely. The exhibits included an extra, extraordinary three-way text conversation on November 16, 2020, among the stars of Fox's primetime lineup, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and Laura Ingram. In the conversation, the three opinion stars complained bitterly and profanely that they were being hurt by Fox. Fox's news division. We devote our lives to building an audience, and they let news anchors Chris Wallace and Leyland Viter wreck it, Carlson said, using an expletive. I'm disgusted at this point, Hannity said. Ingram said that we should all think about how together we can force a change. The audience that exists comes from for us. Also Tuesday, another voting tech company suing Fox News argued that Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch played a leading role in airing false claims that its technology helped steal the 2020 presidential election from Trump. Smartmatic said the Murdochs, as the ultimate authorities at the network's corporate parent, directed Fox News Network to embrace disinformation following the 2020 U.S. election as a business decision. High Utility Bills. Experts Speak to Panel by Judith Kohler. The first hearing of a legislative select committee investigating why heating bills in Colorado shot up this winter and what can be done to tamp them down going forward opened Tuesday with the panel's chairman asking if the longtime system, system of governing utilities needs to be amended. Utility customers across Colorado have seen their heating bills spike, many at least doubling from the previous year. Elected officials and regulators have been flooded with complaints and concerns. Agencies that help people who can't pay their bills have reported large volumes of applications. High wholesale natural gas prices in December and January, as well as bouts of frigid weather, were two major drivers of the skyrocketing costs said staffers from the Colorado Public Utilities Commission and the State Office of the Utility Consumer Advocate. But Senate President Steve Fenberg, a joint select committee chairman, suggested that some changes might be needed in the model used for more than a century to govern public utilities. Under what's referred to as the regulatory compact, public utilities operate essentially as monopolies. The companies are expected to provide reliable service at a reasonable cost to people in certain geographical areas. In return, the companies are allowed to recover their costs of building power plants, tr- transmission lines, and other expenses while making a certain amount of profit. The regulated monopolies, which are for-profit companies, don't run the same kind of risks that traditional businesses do, said Fenberg, a Boulder Democrat. Have we lost track of truly what is reasonable and necessary expense to provide reliable safe and clean energy? Finberg asked I would say if a ratepayer is dec- is deciding between paying their heating bill or paying their prescription this month, then yes something is wrong. perhaps a utility shareholders should not bear a larger part of the burden. Fenberg said Fenberg added the committee made up of three members each from the House and the Senate will hear from utilities, consumer advocates, experts, and others in meetings over the next several weeks. Aaron O'Neill, the PUC's chief economist, told the committee that high wholesale natural gas rates paid by utilities was a main factor behind customers' high bills. Although other utilities also faced high costs, O'Neill focused on Excel Energy because it is Colorado's largest utility. Typical gas bills increased about 75% this winter compared to 2021, O'Neill said. Electric bills rose about 25%. Wholesale natural gas prices have recently dropped and Excel has filed requests with regulators to decrease what it charges customers for the fuel. Wholesale price decreases or increases are passed through to customers with no markup. Natural gas Use rose in December and January because of weather about 10 degrees colder than the same period the previous year, O'Neill said. Customers are also paying to temporarily, a temporary monthly charge to cover Excel Energy's roughly $500 million in expenses from a winter storm in 2021 that gripped a large section of the country from Texas to the Midwest, sending temperatures plunging below zero, and natural gas prices soaring. Another factor is an increase in Xcel Energy's base rates, which cover infrastructure and other costs. The Consumer Advocates Office, which represents the public in cases before the PUC, has criticized the company for what it says has been an increase in rate hike requests. Joe Perea, Deputy Director of the office, said his agency's annual budget is about $2 million. In comparison, Pereira said, "Excel Energy has was allowed to recover two million dollars in outside expenses from one rate case, in which it had it won approval late uh, last year for a 64.2 million increase in natural gas revenue." The advocate's office is suing PUC for approving the expenses, saying the decision wasn't supported by the evidence. Excel Energy, which is based in Minneapolis and serves eight states, reported $1.74 billion in profits for 2022, up 8.75% from 2021. The company's net profits in Colorado were $727 million, up from $660 million in 2021. Utilities come to the table with a darth of information. They set the playing field in their filings, and they have resources to ultimately land in a position that's favorable for themselves, Perea said. now I'll be reading from the Denver Post obituaries. Ralph E. Dowling, April 11, 1931 to March 1, 2023. Ralph E. Dowling of Arvada, Colorado was born in St. Louis, Missouri to Edward and Hazel Jacobs Dowling. Eugene Wilfred Fahey, November 11, 1936 to March 2, 2023. Visit 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday, March 9th 2023, at H&M Thornton. Lewis Prescott, August 18, 1959 to December 28, 2022. Lewis was a friend and a father. He was loved and he will be missed. May he rest in peace. Phyllis Francis Phyllis Regner, April 3, 1925 to February 28, 2023. Francis Phyllis Regner passed away peacefully at the Claremont residence community on February 28, 2023, at the age of 97. Francis A. Fran Shedd. April 28, 2022 to March 4th, 2023. For full, for full obituary, please visit website monarchsociety.com forward, forward slash obits. Beverly A. Tabor. On December 20th, 2022, we lost our dear mother and grandma, grandmother. Beverly Tabor, at the age of 95. Now I'll be reading some miscellaneous articles from the Denver Post. Norfolk Southern Safety Agency Opens Probe of Rail Accidents by Josh Funk and John Sewer, the Associated Press. Omaha. Federal investigators are opening a wide-ranging investigation into one of the nation's biggest railroads following a fiery derailment on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border last month, and several other accidents involving Norfolk Southern, including the death of a train conductor Tuesday. The National Transportation Safety Board said on Tuesday it will begin a broad look at the company's safety culture, the first such investigation within the rail industry since 2014. The NTSB said it sent investigation teams to look into five significant accidents involving Norfolk Southern since December 2021. The agency also urged the company to take immediate action to review and assess its safety practices. Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw pledged to hold a series of company wide safety meetings Wednesday, one day ahead of when he is scheduled to testify in Congress at a hearing on the East Palestine Palestine derailment. Moving forward, we are going to rebuild our safety culture from the ground up, he said in a statement we are going to invest more in safety. This is not who we are. It is not acceptable and it will not continue. In response to the Ohio derailment, the railroad on Monday announced plans to improve the use of detectors placed along railroad tracks to spot overheating bearings and other problems. Investigators with the NTSB said the crew operating the train that derailed February 3rd outside East Palestine, Ohio, got a warning from such a detector, but couldn't stop the train before more than three dozen cars came off the tracks and caught fire. Half the town of about 5,000 people had to evacuate for days when responders intentionally burned toxic chemicals in some of the derailed cars to prevent an uncontrolled explosion, leaving residents with lingering health concerns. Government officials say tests haven't found dangerous levels of chemicals in the air or water in the area. Within the industry, Norfolk Southern has had a strong reputation for being a safe railroad over the years, said Christopher Barkan, Director of the Rail Transportation and Engineering Center at the University of Illinois. Federal Railroad Administration statistics show accidents involving Norfolk Southern are down since 2019, but the rate of accidents is up over the past decade. The 119 derailments involving Norfolk Southern last year was the lowest number in the last decade. Industry-wide, there were more than 1,000 derailments last year. The pressure has has been mounting on the rail company in the aftermath, aftermath of the East Palestine disaster. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg told the nation's freight railroads in February to immediately act to improve safety while regulators were focusing on strengthening safety rules. Buttigieg said the department will hold the railroad accountable for any safety violations that contributed to the February third crash. President Joe Biden said on Twitter after the derailment that the past pattern of railroads resisting safety regulations must change and that Congress should support the effort to improve safety. Now I'll be reading from the Denver Post culture section. Restaurants change makers. Summit County's dining scene is on the rise. Here is who behind is who's behind the shift. By Amanda Faceon, special to the Denver Post. In 2018, when Phillips Armstrong opened a room food and wine in Breckenridge, he saw an opportunity to bring something new to town. What he couldn't have what he couldn't have known was that his restaurant. An upscale, new American restaurant nestled into a revamped house on Ridge Street would nudge the local dining scene in a new direction. It's not unusual for resort towns to have thriving but creatively stagnant restaurant communities. This is not unique to Breckenridge. It's not even unique to Colorado. Rather, it's often the gravitational force of being a tourist town. Visitors visitors swing through, stay a few days, and eat their way through their through the offerings. So long as the meals consumed are good enough, said tourists will return on their next visit. And so goes the cycle. There's very little incentive to push culinary boundaries when the bulk of dining comes from the from the thrum of out-of-towners. In short, if it's not broken, why fix it? And this is where Armstrong and his restaurant group, Destination Hospitality, made their mark. When it first opened, Our room's menus read like that of a big city restaurant, like nothing else in Breck. There was warm king crab with brown butter dashi. There was sultry green herb risotto. There was also a daily happy hour plush with warm buttery Parker House rolls, an excellent burger with onion jam and melty gruyere, and golden haystacks of hand-cut fries. All at once, Armstrong nabbed the palates of the food enthusiast, tourists, and locals. I think we were a change maker, Armstrong said. When we were looking at Breck, people would say, but it's so saturated, there are so many restaurants, why would you want to compete? He recounted. I think it really takes someone to say, yes, true, but there is an opportunity to give people something different. Now nearly five years on, Our room's menu still pushes and delivers with dishes like octopus carpaccio with grilled artichoke, $18, beef tartare with everything sourdough, sourdough, cracker, $20, and crispy curry cauliflower with hazelnut dukkah, $16. Come Memorial Day, Armstrong will also launch the Carlin, a much-anticipated inn with two restaurant concepts and luxury hotel rooms. In this way, Arum largely paved the way for Chef Matt Vaughter, a Keystone native who left Summit County to cook in Denver under Alex Seidel at Fruition Restaurant and Mercantile Dining and Provision, to return to town and open Rootstock in December 2020. Rootstock raised the bar even further than Arum, ushering the finely tuned craft and flavors of Fruition and Mercantile to, to, to town. With a farm-to-table ethos coupled with seasonal ingredients, house-made pastas, a chef's counter, a tasting menu, and a front-of-house staff that embodies the word hospitality. Rootstock carved out its, its niche, and quickly. The restaurant has flourished despite being one of the more expensive dinner, diners in the country. And like Aram. Rootstock is loved by locals and tourists alike. The recommended piece is is big up here, Vauder explained. We knew we were doing something great when we would ask, how did you hear about this place? And they would say, oh, a local told me on the share left. Rootstock, which refers to Vauder returning to his roots, has been so successful that he opened Radicato, a more casual Italian-leaning spot up the street. Last June, radicato means deep-rooted in Italian. Between the two spots, you can find dishes like crispy sun-choked salad with pickled mustard for $21, house-made Reganetti pasta with pancetta, chanterelles, and walnut grimola, grimolata for $22, and pancetta-wrapped quail with creamy polenta and cacciatore for $41. The restaurants are important. Votter said, but there is also, but he also has an eye on the scene as a whole. When I was at the Cellar, a small place restaurant in Frisco that closed in 2008, we were doing cool stuff, but it wasn't well received. But the local community has grown and evolved, he said. Now, Votter wants to create culinary opportunities in Summit County that, don't, that didn't exist when he was a young cook. That's what we were trying to build, he emphasized. I left this town because I couldn't learn from here. I needed to learn from bigger chefs, and I hope that no one has to make that decision. It might be difficult to imagine two restaurants, a room and rootstock, could affect so much change, but, as they say, build it and they will come. Slowly but surely, the culinary fabric is changing countywide. In July 2020, arguably one of the worst times in recent history to open a place, Chris Schmidt turned to the lights on Bird Craft, a a stall inside Frisco's Outer Range Brewing Company. Schmidt, who first opened Craftsman and Edwards in 2017, already understood what it takes to move a scene forward. It is not overstepping to say that Craftsman and its neighbor, Hovey and Harrison, made Edwards's vibrant culinary culture what it is today. In the two-plus years since opening, Birdcraft's Thai-style fried chicken and other Southeast Asian eats have become veritable staples no matter which part of the county you live in. The food is different. You can't get anything like anywhere like it anywhere in Summit, Schmidt said. It's fresh from a flavor standpoint and as a concept. It's not pretentious. It's accessible, and it's great fit for the taproom. Another great fit, Bluebird Market Hall, celebrated its one-year anniversary in January. The food hall is Summit's first, but it's not located in Breckeridge or even Frisco. Instead, it's smack in the middle of Silverthorne, long considered a pass-through town. Downtown Silverthorne is developing well, a downtown. Bluebird is an anchor with 11 vendors ranging from empanadas and ice cream to crepes and pizza. Scott Volmer, Bluebird's Director of Property Operations, believes there's something for everyone. And given the constant buzz that, that populates the hall, Bluebird has struck gold or at least become a family staple. A huge number of our regulars are families, whether those are weekend, second homeowners, or locals, he said. When Vollmer set out to create Bluebird, he envisioned a place that would encourage locals and tourists alike to gather. When we look at Summit, we saw the community was already there. But it's fair to say it was an underserved dining scene, he said. We wanted to create an environment with year-round connection points. My hope is that with the momentum of restaurants like Rootstock, Radicato, and Orem, plus the Carlin when it opens in May, and easy-to-pop-up places like Bird Cafe and Bluebird, that other restaurateurs will see Summit as a ready playground with room to grow. I'm all about healthy competition, said Vauder. There's that saying that a rising tide lifts all boats. I want to see everyone up here succeed, and I want great places to go eat. Thank you for joining us for the Wednesday, March 8th reading of the Denver Post. My name is Bill Head. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.